Well, hello. My name is Joshua Walters. I'm the campus pastor here at the Mount Pleasant campus, one of the teaching pastors here at Seacoast. And we are so glad that you're here to worship with us this weekend. I want to welcome you if you're joining us online or in one of the venues at an offsite campus, wherever you happen to be, we are glad that you're here to join us as well. The last couple weeks, six weeks actually, we've been in a series called I See a Church where we processed the values that we believe that God has called us to embody as a people. More importantly, we talked about some of the key habits or behaviors that would embody those values and it was an exciting series because while we talked about it here on the weekend, we also processed it in hundreds of small groups across all of our campuses, many of which have been in contact with us to tell us they've picked a new curriculum or changed up their, their rhythm to keep meeting at a, as a group, so we're, uh, we're real excited about that. Well, this week, instead of kicking off a new series, we thought it would be helpful for us to just push pause for a moment and really kind of get practical as to what it could look like for us as a church uh, if we were people that are marked by the power and presence of God. If we grow smaller as we grow larger and commit to making an impact both here in our church and community as a people that is built on the sacrifices of many, not just the gifts of a few, what's one area in particular that we could have tremendous impact? And we've been planning and preparing for this day, really excited about it because we're believing in many ways God's gonna fan into flame a movement that he plants within each of our hearts that ultimately impacts the lives of hundreds of people and transforms our community. How many of you could get excited about that? A couple of y'all, that's just good, exciting stuff. Well, I wanna pray for us before we get started, but uh, also wanna let you know that in just a few hours, three or four hours, Pastor Tim and Rebecca Lindsay that were on our staff for about a year and led our college and 20-somethings ministry called The Well, uh, left just several months ago to plant Metropolis Church in Zurich, Switzerland, and they're gonna be launching in just a few hours, so I wanted to remind you of that so you could keep them on your hearts and in prayer. We'll pray for them as well as we get started. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you were a God that constantly calls us to new adventures, allowing us to experience new aspects of you, uh, allowing us to see you do more in and through us than we could ever ask or imagine. So first, God, I pray for each of us today that our hearts and minds would be open uh, to your word, God, that we would experience more of your heart and walk in what you have for us. We pray for Pastor Tim and Rebecca in Zurich, Switzerland, God, and pray that you would multiply their investments of prayer and finances and, and preparation and planning for this day, that you would use them to, to reach and impact the lives of, of hundreds of people there in Zurich. So please move in a mighty way for your glory. And God, we also pray for the San Francisco Giants, that you would help them get through this series for our sound guy, Mike, and our Sea Island campus pastor, Rusty, in Jesus' name, amen. Just saying, they need our prayers, and I, uh, I don't really have a dog in, in that fight. I don't care too much about either team, but I saw this picture this week that Pastor Rusty posted, our Sea Island campus pastor, of he and his wife at a Giants game on their sixth or seventh anniversary. And I just thought, I'd throw that up there um, for all the ladies to just know. I mean, that's a godly woman. On their anniversary, <laughs> they're at a baseball game. Just thought, this has nothing to do with the message, but you might want to write that on the top of the outline, just as a creative idea. Sea Island, we are taking your, your lead. It's an awesome example <laughs> there. Well, hey, a couple weeks ago, I, uh, I went to the grocery store with Abel, and it was about bedtime, a little bit later than we would normally go out. He's our five-year-old, and uh, we went to Harris Teeter. If you're not from here, I agree with you. That's an awkward name for a grocery store, and we pull in the parking lot and had kind of parked between the, the traffic lights, so it was a little bit of a shaded area. I get Abel out of the car, and we walk around the car, and right as we do, there's a girl kind of standing there in the, in the shadows, and so that kind of startled me. She was like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to scare you. I was like, you didn't scare me. I'm, not, I'm scared. <laughs> you know, whatever. 
She said, well, this is awkward, but uh, I'm a student at Trident Technical College, and I'm in a bit of a tough spot financially and wondered if you'd be willing to uh, give me some money. And everything about the ask just felt weird to me. We're in the shaded part of a grocery store parking lot. Uh, she was dressed totally normal. I mean, looked average, just like me, but a girl, you know, so I guess I should say she was incredibly good looking and strong, you know, I'm <laughs> um, no, just kidding. Just as, you know, well, whatever, well dressed, sharp. She was holding an iPhone. So I was just trying to size up like, what, what's going on here? And typically anytime I'm presented with a need, whether it's someone who approaches me or a need that I see in our community, almost immediately a thousand questions kind of filter through my mind. Is the need legitimate? Uh, do I have cash on me? The answer is always no. So the next question, is there an ATM nearby? If they wanted money for food, should I go get them food and bring it back instead of giving them money so that I don't en enable some sin or behavior? While I'm processing that, I think about, is it cold outside? Do they have a jacket? Are they wearing shoes? Are they homeless? Is there anywhere that I could take them or a person I could connect them with that would better serve them in some area? All these questions you know, that, that feed into my response. Well, in this moment in particular, it was like in my brain a new folder opened because it was the first time I'd ever had one of my kids with me when someone presented me with a need. So all of a sudden I'm thinking, oh, how am I gonna, how am I gonna teach Abel about being a good steward but also being generous? If here now this person has said, I'm in need, will you give me money? And I just say, I don't have any cash. Is he gonna think Team Walters isn't generous? That ain't cool. You know, so I don't know how to respond. I don't know how I would have responded if he wasn't there, right or wrong, in this moment. I said, hey, we're about to go in and do some grocery shopping. I don't have any cash on me, but if you wanna hang out out here for a little while, I'll get some extra cash back and we can hook you up when we leave. So as we were leaving, I'd gotten some money for her and she was sitting outside doing something on her phone and handed her the money and said we'd be praying for her and, and Abel and I drove on home. Now, how many of you have ever had a situation like that, where either someone approached you with a need and asked you for something, or you saw a need in your community and you just weren't quite sure how to respond? We've all had those moments. Uh, what's the godly thing to do? What's the right thing to do? There's times where helping hurts. What's the appropriate response for me to best serve this person? Well, see, up until those moments of interaction, up until those conversations, our faith journey, our relationship with God is primarily an internal adventure or an internal struggle where we're presented with, with dozens of different truths from God's word. Things like God loves you. It seems so simple. Uh, when he looks at you, his face isn't shaking with disappointment. He actually delights in you. So much so that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sin. So that there is now no guilt, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. When you feel guilt or shame because of your past or the things that you've done in Christ, you have to do that no longer because he paid the price for your sin. That by his resurrection, he conquered sin and death, that you too can have victory over the sin, the struggles in your life. That when you've entered into a relationship with God, the Bible tells us we're given his Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come that he will never, ever leave you nor forsake you. Those truths and the implications of them in our life are, are enormous. They change the way we see ourselves, we feel about ourselves, they change the way we go about our day. And up until that conversation, up until those moments of interaction, our faith journey is a lot of processing and sifting and accepting by faith those many different truths from Scripture. Well, interestingly, the, the metric that God uses to determine the sincerity of our faith, 
the way that, that God judges the authenticity of our worship and our pursuit of him is not our ability to settle that internal struggle or, or resolve any of those truths by faith, but it's actually how we respond to the woman in the parking lot at the grocery store. When we see a need, whether it's someone who's approached us or one that we see in our community, what comes out of us in those moments is very telling. It gives us a good idea in terms of the alignment between our heart and the heart of God. There's a passage of scripture that honestly I don't know that I've ever heard anybody preach on. It's one of those that feels like a spiritual body slam, you know, just punch me in the face, real uplifting kind of passage. And so uh, now that I've set that up so well for you, I'd love for us to read it together. It's in Matthew 25, there on your outlines, it says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your internal inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Now the challenging part of this passage is when Jesus goes on to say, likewise, whatever you did not do for any one of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did not do unto me. Then to those on his right who were attentive to the needy, to the most vulnerable in their community, he said, come forward and receive your internal inheritance prepared by my father. And to those on the left who had not, he dismissed them into eternal punishment and separation from God. Now, wasn't that encouraging? <laughs> I flipped over to the next passage to see, did he like let up any on them? You know, uh, as the disciples, they had left their families, businesses, nets, you know, lives to come and follow him. Did he say like, hey guys, this is more for the people that are gonna come after you. I know you guys have paid a great price, but he didn't let up any. In fact, the header for the next passage of, of scripture, I don't think is coincidental, is the plot to kill Jesus, you know? It's like he had brought that word and people just didn't know how to handle it. And it's a challenge for us. We've all had those moments individually, especially given our lives, work and responsibility, homes and cars and family and, and kids. Who are the hungry or the thirsty or the stranger among us? And what is my responsibility toward them? If that's the metric you're gonna use for my faith to be sincere or authentic, what's the right way to respond? See, we've all had those moments individually, but we've also had them corporately. There's been times where we as a church have seen a need in our community that was much greater than any one of us could possibly resolve. Just seven or eight years ago, Pastor Greg's watching the news to see that North Charleston is the seventh most dangerous city in the country. In the country, just six, seven miles across the bridge. It's just shocking. So he starts praying for the city. And one day, driving over the bridge, uh, is praying for the city and the churches and the people, and hears God say, why don't you do something about it? Man, I'd have swerved off the bridge. Like, who are you talking to? You know, like, what am I gonna do about that? You know? 
But it led him to, to pray about it, conversations with Pastor Sammy, which ultimately led to the planning of the North Charleston Dream Center. That now years later, through weekend services and the medical clinic, dental clinic, adopt-a-block, closed closet, food pantry, E3 mentoring, the list of services they provided in the community goes on and on and on. Thousands of lives have been changed and a community has literally been transformed. It was a problem much bigger than any one person could solve, but because the church stood up, many people moved to the area, started attending a different campus, giving generously. God has used our sacrifices to radically impact a community. Well, for about the last year, we've been in a similar season where we feel like God has revealed to us another uh, opportunity in our community, a significant gap, and it pertains to the area of foster care. Typically, or right now in our state, there are 3,628 children in foster care. In the Tri-County area alone, Charleston, Dorchester, and Berkeley County, there's 404 children. Now, hearing those numbers themselves uh, aren't necessarily staggering. They're high, so you would think, man, that is a lot of kids. The problem comes in the fact that there's only 60 licensed foster families leaving 340 children under the care of the state where the best that they can provide is a roof over their head, a bed for them to sleep in, and a meal to, to put in front of them. Now, to give you an idea of what this is like, when Katie and I first moved to Charleston, I was unemployed for about seven months, which was just an awesome season in my life. And the only place that I could find employment was at Carolina Youth Development Center, where I bridged the second to third shift uh, and Car Carolina Youth Development Center is a, essentially a group home facility. They have six or seven homes. Each home varies in the age of the child and the length of their stay. And so I, I worked in the youngest short-term facility. So children from birth to eighth grade who would be there for up to three months. And on any given day, uh, while I was at work from five to midnight or six to two in the morning, somewhere in that range, if we had a bed available, a child would be dropped off, and depending on the nature of their circumstances, uh, they might have been picked up from a friend's house where they were just, all they had with them was the clothes that they were wearing. Uh, DSS might have picked them up from school where they would show up with their book bag and school supplies from that day. Many kids showed up with, with nothing at all. And to give you some context of what that was like, in a, in a moment, they would have to leave behind the stuffed animal they had always slept with or the sibling they had always shared a room with. Any semblance of stability or comfort in their life had been taken from them in a moment where they would be dropped off in a group home and share a room with four to five other kids who had come from an equally traumatic environment. I'm reminded of one girl in particular that was in fifth or sixth grade and for whatever reason, because of the, the, the nature of her circumstances, she had kind of reverted back to childlike behavior. And every night when she would go to bed, she would wet the bed, and she just couldn't control it. And so every morning, the girls in her room would yell at her and dog her about it, call her names, and internally, you could just see her crumble. We would see kids come in that because they didn't have many of their possessions or had one or two things with them, they treasured the things that they have. So when they would leave to go to school each day, they didn't want to leave them in the room on the bed because they didn't know that the things would be there for sure when they got back. So they would wrap up these valuables in their pillowcases or comforters, try to hide them, and they didn't have a dresser to put things in. They might have a drawer in a dresser or a shelf in a closet. They didn't feel safe. At best, because of the rooms that they shared, the environment was toxic. It was not the kind of environment where they were gonna hear that there's a God who loves them, who knit them together, 
who has a plan and a purpose for their life, that he sent his son to die on the cross for their sins. It was just, it was far from God's best. So as we started to pray about this as a church, we were led to to a reality that motivated us to continue to walk down this road. And it's the statement there on your outlines that says this, we can resolve the foster care crisis in our community. We can resolve the foster care crisis in our community. See, most of the other problems that we get involved with as a church aren't nearly as tangible. To, to serve the hungry or the homeless, to stop violence. These are huge cultural systemic problems that at best we can relieve but not resolve. But the foster care crisis here in our community and across all of our campuses, if we had a spreadsheet that would be six or seven pages long with 340 rows, they would be the names of not hypothetical children but real children in our community that are in need of a family to speak truth into their lives. Man, our hearts began to break for these kids. But just like the conversation with the lady at the grocery store, just like any moment that you've encountered someone that's, that's had a need and didn't know how to respond, this opportunity left us with more questions than it did answers. So today as a church, what I'd love for us to do is just take a few minutes to process some of these questions together. The first of which there on your outlines is this. Number one, why this? Why this? Of all of the problems in our world, uh, drugs and alcohol, neglect, violence, human trafficking, I mean, the list goes on and on and on of things that we could get involved in that break the heart of God. Why foster care? First reason is because God's word is clear about his heart towards the orphan. There on your outline sheets is just a handful of passages of dozens all throughout scripture He defends the cause of the fatherless. He is a father to the fatherless. He sustains the fatherless. All through scripture, we see God giving special care to the orphan. Now, why is that? I think it's primarily because children are the most vulnerable people group, the most at-risk demographic. If the enemy can isolate a child and convince them that they are not desirable, convince them that, that they are not loved, then it's condemning them to repeat a generational cycle, condemning them to to live out the future that they've lived in up till that point. And it breaks the heart of God. He gives special care to the orphan. James 1.27 there on the back of your outline is one of my favorite passages that capture this because in many ways it mirrors Matthew 25 that we read just a few minutes ago. But it, it names the people group. Whereas Matthew 25 says the stranger and the hungry and the thirsty, it's like, who are those people and how do we find them? And James 1, he, he labels them. It says this, religion that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Now, depending on the translation you use, some say worship that God the Father accepts. So our pursuit, our praise, worship of him with our lives and in our gatherings that he accepts as pure and faultless Some translations say true and blameless. So sincere and authentic pursuit of him is this, to look after the orphan and widow in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. He labels them. Who is the stranger, the hungry, the thirsty? Who are these people? They're the vulnerable in our community, namely the orphan and the widow. So God's word is clear about his heart for the orphan. Secondly, because we believe that he's called us as a church to get involved. We believe that he's called us as a church to get involved. If we started looking at this crisis and praying through and and 
strategizing, what would it look like for us to get involved? What kind of impact could we make? We realized, one, that it would not be possible without a large community of people whose hearts were burdened for the orphan and the fatherless. Just a couple years ago here at our, at our campus, Stephen and Laura Lewis, who are elders here at the church, were walking through a global adoption. And they learned a lot through the process. There was a lot of amazing things that God did, but there was also a lot of struggle. So I thought, man, what if we started a community of people for folks that are burdened by the orphan and fatherless that we could resource, encourage each other, share best practices, be able to pray for each other. And so here now, years later, there's a community of several hundred people that gather who have been, been supported through international adoptions, but also through local adoptions and now also through foster care. A bunch of people whose hearts are burdened by this that are now gonna be available for any families that wanna step forward to take in and support one of these children in any way uh, that they can connect with Journey Together. Then we started praying through, well, what kind of ministry partners are there available for us that would be able to license and certify foster families? Church of the Highlands in Birmingham, Alabama that's pastored by Pastor Chris Hodges is one of Pastor Greg's best friends. And they had a similar crisis there in that community where they partnered with an organization called Lifeline that was able to help them make huge impact regarding the foster care crisis in their community. So we reached out to Lifeline only to learn that they have two offices that are certified to pursue foster care, one of which is in Birmingham, Alabama. Any guesses where the second is? Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. <laughs> Here just miles up the road, they had helped dozens of families with, with adoption, but now too they were certified. We scheduled a meeting with DSS and they said, hey, you've got the green light to pursue this. You have all the licensing and certification needed to resource families. So then we started questioning, okay, well how much is that gonna cost? You know, if we've gotta essentially staff an office for Lifeline that could be dedicated to resourcing and supporting Seacoast families and anyone else in our faith community that wants to get involved in this area, what are the fees for administrative costs and training and hiring a social worker? And because of your faithfulness and generosity and giving, we were able to staff their office for this first year without having to come to the church to ask for any money. Isn't that incredible? Because of your faithfulness and giving, we were positioned to be able to do that and make an impact in this area. We've had a number of different professionals in several different ways step forward. We had an eye doctor last week that said, hey, for any child that goes through foster care, I, through our partnership, I would love to provide an eye exam and provide them with any needed eyewear. And that's huge because eye care is not covered in Medicaid. So if a family got a foster child that lost or needed glasses, they would be in a bind as to how they got them. It's like every step along the way, God has been addressing and resolving needs that we would have before we even knew that we would have them. It appears as though God is calling us to do this. Scripture says, in a man's heart, he plans his course, but the Lord directs his steps. And man, every step of the way, he's gone through it with us. It's clear his heart for the orphan in Scripture, and we believe he's calling us to get involved as a church. The second point there on the outline is why us? Why us? Of all the churches in our community, of all the believers in the Charleston area, why is he calling us as a church to get involved in this? When I married Katie, I made a vow to her that I would love her for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer in sickness and in health. And in making that vow, it presented us with two realities. The first of which is there is a very real void in her heart that only God can fill. Uh, there, there's parts of her, that, words that she needs to hear that only God can speak into her soul. But the second reality is that a large percentage of the time, I am the man that God has called to communicate them. My call in scripture is to love her as Christ loved the church and give himself, give myself up for her. 
that through my love for Katie, somehow she might see and be reminded that there is a God in heaven who loves her so much that he sent me into her life. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but that in some way, through my love for her, that may not feel like a blessing at times, babe, I'm sorry. But <laughs> through my love for her, she would be reminded of, she would see and experience the love of God in her life. So that next blank there on your outline, why us? Because we represent God. We represent God. 2 Corinthians 5.20 says it this way. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. As we begin to open our hearts and our home to each of these children in our community who are in need, it's so much greater than a Josh or a Katie or any one of you opening up your homes to these children. It's giving them access to see and experience the heart of God because we are his ambassador. We represent him. Secondly, because we are a part of God's family. We are a part of God's family. 1 Corinthians 12, 27 says it this way. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. Every single one of us is a part of the body of Christ here at Seacoast. And we're believing because God is calling us to, as a church to get involved in it, that he's gonna stir many of your hearts to take a step in some way as well. Now, does that mean because we're getting involved in it that we need every single one of you to be foster parents? You know, absolutely not. For many of you, that would be the worst thing that you could do. Uh, for example, just this past weekend, Greg McCool, who's a pilot here at the Mount Pleasant campus, took a small group of guys to Coastal Pre-Release, where they took food and just went to establish some relationship and share the good news with these guys. Coastal Pre-Release houses about 100 guys that are about to get out of jail. And that day, last Saturday, they saw 24 guys accept Christ, enter into a relationship with him. It would be crazy for them to step away from all God's doing in and through them in prison ministry to become foster parents. And the same is true for so many of you. You're serving in our church, you're having an incredible impact here in our community or in global missions. God's using you in incredible ways. Foster care may not be the best or the next thing for you. But thankfully, we don't need everyone to respond. The crazy thing about this issue is that if only 3% of people who attend any of our low country campuses were to step forward and say, hey, I'm willing to become a foster parent, we would resolve the immediate need. And that's just incredible. But for it, it to be a sustainable model, we need hundreds of other people that maybe your next step isn't to be a foster parent. Maybe you like to cook and you'd be willing to deliver meals to families who, who take in a child or maybe you'd be willing to pack transition bags you know, as a, a family takes in a child that shows up without any clothes or toys, that we could have an age-appropriate bag packed for him that would communicate in some way, hey, we, we've prepared a place for you, we're excited that you're here. Uh, you could get involved in child care and respite care. There's so many different ways that you could get involved to help make a long-term impact in this area apart from just being a foster parent. So why this, why us? The last question there on your outline is why now? Why now? And the first problem or thought is that ignoring problems only makes them worse. Ignoring problems only makes things worse. About two or three weeks ago, I was driving up Highway 17 here in Mount Pleasant in my wife's minivan. Just to give you some context on the minivan, it's not a swagger wagon, uh, one of those vans that has any like aura of coolness with it. Uh, very much a family transportation unit, you know, and uh, I'm driving up Highway 17, stop at a red light, and a high schooler pulls up beside me in this, like, sweet sports car, 
which just further magnifies the awesomeness of me in the minivan. And uh, he waves over and he's like, hey man, you know, and I put the window down and he's like, bro, one of your brake lights is out in the van. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> awesome, you know? And so light turns green and he zooms off and I go about my way without a lot of urgency to do anything about my brake light. Well, this past week, Katie called. Hey, Jay, what's up? Not much, babe. How you doing? What's going on? She said, not much. Hey, do you know where my registration is? I realized there's only two times when you need your registration. When you're replacing it, you know, with the new one or when someone asks you for it. <laughs> and uh, so my lack of urgency blessed her with a trip to the courthouse in, in weeks to come. And so many of you probably have a testimony that whether it's a small cavity that turned into a root canal whether it was a, a small leak that turned into a lot of water damage and wood rot and mold, when we ignore problems, it only makes things worse. And the same is true here in the area of foster care. Having seen the immediate need of, of 340 families uh, for the current need, if we don't stand in the gap and address it now, it's only going to grow larger and be a cultural systemic problem that touches so many other areas of our communities that we pass on to our children. Ignoring it will only make it worse. And secondly, because now I know. Because now I know. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, ignorance is bliss? <laughs> well, you don't know about a problem? Well, I didn't know about that brake light. <laughs> you know, I didn't care to do anything about it. Even once I knew about it, I didn't care to do anything <laughs> about it. But when we don't know there's a problem, it's easy for us to not do anything about it. It's hard for us to remember that these aren't hypothetical kids, they're real children. I'll go have lunch with any one of our kids periodically in the cafeteria and kind of look down the table. Just be reminded, man, there's 17, 18 other kids in their class, none of which do I know their stories. The lives they're living, the realities they're experiencing every single day. But these are real kids in our community that now that we know that there is a need, a crisis, we have the opportunity to step up. So what can I do? How can I get involved? Number one there, is that I can start praying. I can start praying. We provided a prayer uh, journal or devotional across all of our campuses that you could grab on your way out today that has a testimony in it of a, of a kid in foster care every day as well as a truth uh, to kind of encourage your, or push your prayer life in that. Also, an easier way that you could access this is through the YouVersion app on your phone. Many of you do that if you search for the reading plan, Fostering Hope. That's probably the easiest way to get it. It'll email you uh, the devotional every day and help you kind of guide your, your prayer journey through that. But I want to warn you, uh, Pastor Chip always says that you become intimate with who you pray with and what you pray for. And man, over the last few months, as Katie and I have prayed for foster care, uh, man, it's become incredibly personal. I realized my, uh, my grandpa who passed away when I was young actually grew up in a group home and so my mom got to tell me all about the implications that had on his life and our family that I was never even aware of. Before Katie and I moved, there was a little boy that lived next door to us who would come over our house and play all the time. Uh, I just knew him so well. Well, through some recent crisis in their family, realized uh, a couple weeks ago that he had been placed in foster care. This issue that just felt so out there that I was aware of but was not aware was a crisis has suddenly become very personal. Second thing that you can do in addition to praying is to get involved locally. 
And there's a bunch of different ways that you can do that across all of our campuses. For anyone here in Mount Pleasant or at any of our low country campuses, the best next step that you could take is to attend an interest meeting here at the Mount Pleasant campus on November 10th or the 17th. Uh, we'll have free dinner for adults, childcare will be provided, but it'll be an opportunity for you uh, to get to hear from Lifeline and Seacoast as to what does our partnership look like, what are the expectations to be a foster parent, what are the dozens of different ways that you could get involved in help building a support system for them. And know that by attending an interest meeting, you're not committing to do anything other than gather all of the information and take that to the Lord to be able to pray about it, to say, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. What kind of step would you have me take? How could I get involved? If you don't live here in the low country but would still love to come, we'd love to have you at one of those interest meetings. Once we build a solid, sustainable model here, Lifeline is certified to resource all of our other campuses, so in years ahead, we'll be branching out. But until then, we've partnered with a number of other solid foster organizations. The president of the Bear Foundation attends our Irmo campus, uh, so they'll be able to resource Irmo in Columbia. They've also got a strong partnership with our West Campus. It's exciting stuff happening in Greenville and Manning and Asheville as well. So wherever you happen to be, I would encourage you to take some steps to get involved locally. As you pray, be open to however God might wanna use you and come check out an interest meeting so that you can gather all the information to hear how you can get involved. You know, as we close today, I'm reminded of a uh, little girl named Marianne Bird. And uh, she's grown now, but she recounts a story of when she was in second grade uh, in Miss Leonard's class. She was born with a cleft palate and had a slightly misshaped uh, lip and nose. Her teeth were crooked, her voice was a little gargled, and her classmates were very faithful at reminding her of how different she looked, of making fun of the way that she sounded. She was convinced that no one outside of her family would ever truly be able to love her. When asked what happened to her, it was easy for her to tell people that she had been in a real bad accident than have to communicate to people that she had just been born different. Well, every year in Miss Leonard's class, all the kids loved her, and, and part of her assessment at the end of the year was a hearing test. So kids would stand on the other side of the classroom and cover one ear, and she would whisper a series of phrases like, the grass is green, or the water is running, the sky is blue, things like that. And Marianne, uh, now tells a story of the five words that she heard that forever changed her life. The phrase that she heard Miss Leonard say that she never knew she needed to hear as she stood there against the wall with her ear covered, Miss Leonard whispered, I wish you were mine. I wish you were mine. You know, every day in each of our communities, there's hundreds of children that look very similar to all the other kids in their class, but on the insides, they feel very different. They acknowledge that their lives don't look like the other kids in their class. Can you imagine what it would be like if we were to love each of these children with the kind of intensity that in some way communicated, I wish you were mine? If somehow through our pursuit of them, through modeling faithful, unconditional love, they would see and experience the heart of the Father that could forever change their lives. I'll tell you what it could look like. There's a guy here in our church that if you were to take a snapshot of his life when he was 10, 11, 12 years old, you'd see him bouncing from house to house to house. He was one of nine, and his eight other siblings were all in foster care. In the third house that he finally settled in, a family took him to church, and upon watching them take communion one day, he questioned why he couldn't take it as well. They shared the good news with him, and he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. He went on to go to college and medical school, 
moved to Charleston, started attending Seacoast, has got involved in our missions program, and God has used them to have an incredible impact on thousands of lives all across the world, all because a family was willing to open up their hearts, to open up their homes, and share with him the good news about Jesus. What if today was the day where God planted a vision in your heart, whether it's to become a foster parent, to resource and support those who have in some way, that years from now we can look back at a church and celebrate the miracle that God has done. That no longer is there a crisis, not just in the low country, in our community, but in any of our communities because of our willingness to love the most vulnerable. I believe that God's gonna do it. And I'm excited to see the way that he's gonna use each of us, the work that he's gonna do, not only in our lives, but in our communities and in their lives. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are one, our Father. I'm reminded of your promise in Matthew 14 where you say, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. God, I'm thankful for your incredible love for me, for each of us, that while we were still sinners, the Bible said Christ died for us, that out of your love for us, you sent your Son, that we might experience and encounter you as our Heavenly Father. And God, I pray today, in in whatever way is appropriate for each of us, you would break our hearts for what breaks yours for the many ways you may be calling us to be a father to the fatherless, to be your ambassador, to represent you to to, to children whose stories' lives could look forever different. God, would you be present with us today as we respond? In Jesus' name, amen.